Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. My name is Judith Koch. I'm a PhD student and the production manager of this podcast. Please welcome today's host, Vinet Thakur, lecturer in international relations at the Institute of History at Leiden University and board member of the EISA. Hello and welcome to this edition of EISA's podcast, Voices. Today we will be in conversation with someone whose work has been a great influence on me and most people in my academic circles, that is, uh, Global South researchers working on post-colonial approaches to knowledge production. Now, our guest today has a bachelor's degree in chemistry, a master's degree in history, and a PhD in political science. And he is now a leading scholar of international relations. These transdisciplinary adventures, as he confirms in his official bio, come from a deep sense of melancholia that accompanies every South Asian male academic. Because at the end of the day, we all consider ourselves failed cricketers. So I'm very pleased to welcome today my favorite writer on crickinfo.com and, and for our purposes today, an authority on postcolonial IR, Professor Sankran Krishna. Professor Krishna teaches at the University of Hawaii, and we'll be talking about what is postcolonialism. So welcome, Krishna. Thank you, Vineet. Thank you, Judith. Uh, it's funny you should pick up that uh, line from my bio about every South Asian academic being a failed cricketer, because as I was thinking about today's podcast, I thought I was reminded of CLR James's uh, very famous phrase, what do they know of cricket who only cricket know? Because I think amended slightly, what do they know of IR who only IR know? would be actually the perfect epigraph for the conversation that's uh, about to happen. Um, so where shall I begin? Uh, shall I go back to the early period and talk about uh, the formation? No, let, let, me, <laughs> let me ask you that. All oh, right, right, right. Uh, let me frame a question for you. Um, okay. But it'll also be interesting to talk about cricket if we could, uh, although we sure. probably won't have time considering IPL finished yesterday. Uh, but nevertheless... Uh, but um, going back to your early work, uh, two of your early pieces, two of your pieces, can't say early pieces, uh, one, the importance of being ironic, um, and the second one was race amnesia and education of international relations. Both of them appeared, I think, in the journal Alternatives. And both of them have become definite, definitive works on postcolonial approaches to IR. They are, I think, widely taught in intro and advanced IR theory courses around the world. Uh, I, for instance, you know, um, I, I always say this, I always have two readings on my course list, no matter what I'm teaching. Uh, one is Sex and Death in Rational World Order by Carol Cohn, and second is Race Amnesia and Education and International Relations. Uh, so that piece is quite sort of, um, quite important to my teaching, but uh, I've also seen plenty of course syllabi around the world to know that almost everyone teaches it. 
and, and these came at sort of in these in the period of 1990s and early uh, 2000s. And at that time, you were part of, uh, not self-consciously perhaps, uh, this relatively new scholarship in IR that started to emphatically place race and colonialism at the very center of international relations. Uh, Robbie Williams did this wonderful interview, uh, I think last year, uh, with you and a bunch of other people, the sort of earlier first generation of sort of uh, post-colonial scholars, scholars in IR, whose influence um, in the scholarship today is quite wide-ranging and I think all sorts of sub-disciplines of IR. Uh, speaking of subdisciplines, back in India, I think uh, your work, uh, along with Iti Abram's work on even on Indian foreign policy, for instance, sort of post-colonial approach, sort of a post-colonial approach to foreign policy, gave I think uh, a new language to a lot of scholars who were working on IFP. So I was wondering if you could take us back to that period of sort of 1990s, early 2000s, and tell, tell us a bit more about the approach. Uh, which is now often situated under this broad post-colonial sort of uh, umbrella. Uh, why you wrote those pieces? A friend of mine who I think was a student of yours told me once that you wrote that in five days. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's a sort of a, uh, some kind of a legend. Uh, uh, but hopefully, uh, you know, if you could sort of through that answer, you could tell us, uh, g- give us a glimpse of... Um, for why these post-colonial approaches emerged, who were your your influences? So if you could tell us something about that. Sure. Thanks for that. Uh, you're absolutely right that the term post-colonial to coalesce a whole bunch of uh, people and what they were doing sort of came post-facto. We didn't realize we were uh, operating under this rubric, as it were. The rubric sort of came later. So you're absolutely right about that. So let me focus on my trajectory, and I'll talk very briefly about some of the others who are like on parallel streams, as it were. Now, in my case, as you pointed out with my bio, I came into IR very late. And where I came into it from primarily was having done a master's in modern history in JNU and Within political science in the U.S., I had tended to focus quite a bit on comparative politics. Now, coming from these two sources, I had already sort of become very familiar with, you know, the works of people like Samir Amin, Andre Gunda Frank, Emmanuel Wallerstein, Amiya Bakchi, Prabhakar Utsapatnaik, people like that at the level of the world economy. And within India, I'd already sort of overdosed on, you know, stuff that the history center really specializes in, you know, the theory of the drain, Dada by Nauroji stuff, Ramesh Chandra Dutt, all of that. And being in Jane, you had also imbibed a lot of Marx, Lenin, Trotsky, Gramsci, Fanon, and all the rest of it. So this is the background with which I'm doing my first seminars or courses in IR, a subject which incidentally I had not studied at all before. So I walk into these courses and it's it was just amazing to me how a discipline could talk about global politics, about international relations, about the emergence of the modern interstate system without really talking at all about colonialism, about imperialism, about racism, about genocide, about you know the settling of the new world and all the rest of it. I'd been trained in classical political economy. And if you go to Smith or Marx, they very clearly, you know, sort of source value in unrequited labor. 
Both of them emphasize the discovery of the new world and the plunder and pillage that accompanied it and the slave trade and other things in the West becoming the West. And here was this discipline titled international relations, which seemed to just skirt around this or talk about it in a very sort of arcane and abstract way. So I'll give two instances from then, uh, two specific works, which are highly influential in the subfield within IR called IPE, or International Political Economy. Uh, so the first one is Robert Cohen's After Hegemony, which was published in 1984. And if you go and look at the first few pages of the book, Cohen starts by saying he's, you know, even though the subtitle of the book is about world politics or something like that, Within the first two pages or so, he says he's going to confine his analysis almost exclusively to the Western developed world and interactions between the developed capitalist economies. And he says it's because they kind of form a community of nations that agree about most things regarding how the economy works, the role of the state and the economy. And then he says because of a fundamentally liberal market-based societies. And then he says, any lessons that we can learn from these interactions could be applied to the rest of the world uh, by those who are interested in doing that. But that's not really my primary concern here. Now, this was to me pretty breathtaking that you would talk about a subset of these economies as having interacted overwhelmingly or exclusively among themselves. And lessons drawn from this could be applied to the rest of the world. This, this went against my whole understanding of an integrated global economy, at least since 1492, with development in one zone, uh, absolutely dialectically and fundamentally interacting with and influenced by the production of the third world, etc. And... It was almost like, I can't believe this work is so influential and these critiques are not more prominently leveled against it. Uh, the second work at this time, also very central to IPE, was Stephen Krasner's Structural Conflict, uh, I think published again in 1984 or 1985. Now, in Structural Conflict, Krasner basically argues that the effort of the countries of the Global South to articulate and push through a new international economic order is an effort to shift from a market-based uh, world economy to a more authoritarian, non-market-based allocation of resources. And the NIEO and the 1960s onwards, all these movements are basically a reflection of the fact that spaces like the General Assembly give each nation one vote or, you know, one uh, soapbox, if you will, and that it fundamentally goes against economic rationality. It fundamentally goes against the liberal market economy that supposedly prevailed for the 100 years, 150 years prior to Bretton Woods. Now, again, for anyone with any elementary understanding of history, the 100 years prior to Bretton Woods was not a global market society. You had the two largest economies, uh, populations in the world, India and China, under various forms of direct uh, or indirect colonialism. 
Uh, you had, you know, all of the usual stuff, gunboat diplomacy, what Gallagher and Robinson had already called free trade imperialism, uh, you know, Britain's control over its giant colonial, you know, uh, subsystem through the world. None of this had anything to do with market-based allocation of resources. It had to do with non-market-based theft of resources. Uh, so it is baffling for me that this period would be sort of posited as a liberal market-based society or world system. So in short, in terms of its understanding of the world interstate system, it rapidly became evident to me that mainstream IR should be seen as an ideological discourse that aimed at evasion and obfuscation rather than explanation. So I sort of began to gravitate towards the one part of IR that actually seemed to have, frankly, an intellectual life uh, based on rigorous readings uh, in philosophy, outside the discipline, uh, as well as some awareness of the centrality of colonialism and racism and things like that. I mean, I'll come to my problems with that too in a minute, but this crowd of post-EIR folks uh, led back at that time in my sort of biography through this by Richard Ashley. Uh, There were two specific works of Richard Ashley, uh, both, you know, the first one published in the very first fall semester of my stay in the U.S. and the second in the spring semester, fall 1983 and spring 1984. So I'm referring basically to his two essays, The Three Modes of Economism, published in ISQ in 83, and The Poverty of Neorealism published in spring of 1984 in IO, International Organization. So these are the two top journals in the field. And these two critiques of Ashley, of mainstream IR, of neorealism, of IPE, was to me just devastating. Uh, Drawing on Antonio Gramsci and Pierre Bourdieu, I thought Ashley did a terrific job of showing how a sort of model of neoclassical uh, economics was the underlying uh, sort of epistemic framework of mainstream IR and how it was a completely depoliticized, asocial uh, form of understanding the world. And many of the people who were writing with uh, Ash, uh, Ashley at this time and writing in conversation with them, I mean, people like Michael Shapiro, Rob Walker, Bill Connolly, Jim, James Dedarian, uh, Roxanne Doddy, a little later, David Campbell and others. This was the crowd that, to me, was really the only worthwhile part of IR. And so I was interacting with their readings, beginning to get in touch with some of them, etc. Now, at the same time, there was a frustration, too. I mean, if you take uh, Ashley's entire corpus of work, I don't think you'll really find any engagement with a single third world scholar or any school of thought from there, or even actually any overt engagement with uh, racism, colonialism, imperialism, and the formation of the interstate system. And uh, now this is not a matter of name dropping or a token recognition of scholars or works from there. It's much more than that. It's really how can you talk about the world as if international relations should be a discipline. It was very North Atlantic, this dialogue. You know, it was the critical IR crowd seemed to be enamored of some 
variants of fringe and continental post-structural theory, and they were pointing to flat-footed positivists like Cohen, Krasner, etc., as not being hip enough, not you know getting getting it. But this was still a very North American, and I dare say, a very white dialogue. And for me, when the first Gulf War came out, uh, broke out in the early 1990s, I just joined UH Manoa after finishing my PhD. And the violence, the incredible slaughter shown daily on TV, live often through CNN, uh, brought this sort of uh, anger, quite simply, about both mainstream IR and, frankly, as well as its post-structural variant, uh, you know, visible in a way that I hadn't seen it before. And, frankly, it's that anger that produced uh, the importance of being ironic, that first essay, because the entire latter half of that essay is, all this is fine as it goes, but really, where are the Iraqis? Where is the slaughter uh, being talked about? And also in that post T variance of IR, I sort of discerned a kind of, uh, you know, in a way similar to mainstream IR almost, a kind of uh, a fetish for method uh, and a sort of uh, being enamored by the very, you know, uh, beauty of your conceptual methodology at the expense of what I would consider a, a very visceral reality that was playing itself out. Uh, and so there was a kind of the anti-foundationalism within the post-structural uh, viewpoint seemed to militate against any kind of progressive politics uh, based on, you know, old-fashioned pragmatic notions of making allies, filling the streets with protests, uh, and things like that. So... So this combination of a sort of methodological investment in anti-foundationalism had to be, in, for me, married to some kind of political investment in the possibility of progressive change through democratic politics. So that's where the second big influence came in, which is specifically Edward Said, because Said is especially eloquent on how this is how far anti-foundationalism gets me, and this is where I get off the bus. And for me, the fact that he was a third-worlder who had lost his country, you know, explains why he had that kind of disenchantment with post-structuralist politics beyond the point, and why he had an investment in saying, you know, my country was stolen from me. There is something fundamentally wrong about it. And I will do whatever I can to recover Palestine. Now, the rider that he accompanied that with is crucial. Where he says, I will fight for the recovery of the Palestinian nation so that upon its establishment, I will become its foremost critic. It's that twinning where you say, this is wrong, it has to be reversed. But you don't make that the basis of a new form of essentialism or a new form of domination and instead continuously locate yourself as a critic, as somebody on the margins who's never satisfied with whatever has emerged, even while you know, committing yourself to a kind of pro uh, politics of progressive change. So that would be the second you know, uh, big influence. And the third has to be Ashish Nandi. Uh, 
specifically the two uh, early works, 1980 and 1983, The Psychology of Colonialism and The Intimate Enemy. Now, the, the sort of light bulb that, the thousand watt light bulb that Nandi flashed in my head was when he says, look, colonialism is not the Western uh, imposition on the East. It's instead a pact, a joint pact between the elites of both societies against the marginal sections of people in both societies. So it's not England upon India. It's rather a certain class fragment within England with upper caste fragments in India, coalescing. It's that coalescence that produces colonialism. It's violence. It's modern, uh, it's, you know, it's self-valorization through the modernization project, etc. So Nandi actually gave me an extra national or non-national way of thinking about colonialism, racism, and all the rest of it. So throughout my work, I've sort of resented the idea that some have leveled against it, that this is a kind of, you know, a politics of resentiment. You're just a third worlder, you know, angry about Western racism upon your society, you're belittling you or your work, etc. Of course, it's all of that. And there's nothing wrong with opposing that. <laughs> but I want to emphasize the standpoint is if this is a joint social formation, it is how does the upper caste, English language speaking, uh, you know, classes supposedly modernizing Indian society, how do they exploit or marginalize or push to the edges, the Dalits or everybody else outside of that? So to it's a long answer to your question, but the three main influences really were that whole body of underdevelopment theory from Samir Amin, all the rest of them, Wallerstein, all the rest of them. The second would be Saeed, and the third would be Nandi. As we went along, seeing these other brown faces appear at the ISA, we began to realize that we were a group, that Mustafa was doing this through his understanding of, you know, the working out of colonialism in Pakistani Punjab. Naeem was coming at this through a disenchantment with agricultural economics, and then coming, you know, that's what his masters had been in at Michigan State. Uh, Siba coming in through international law. Uh, with each person sort of, you know, most of us, I think, migrated to IR from elsewhere. And it is precisely that elsewhere, I think, that enabled us to see the absences uh, or what was not there in IR. And that's why I think, uh, you know, that's why that opening thing about what do they know of IR who only IR know? Uh, I think just like in economics, uh, the narrower your training in the discipline, uh, the less uh, the less uncolonized or the more colonized is the easier way of putting it. The more colonized is your uh, way of seeing things through the discipline. So that would be my response to the to my intellectual formation. Yeah. Thanks, Krishna. I was uh, thinking about, you know, uh, when at the start you mentioned you did your uh, history at JNU and you've written about JNU. And of course, I also come from JNU. But, and I was thinking about this the other day that JNU doesn't allow you to be, you know, to 
sort of encase yourself in certain kind of disciplinarity because you know most of the education happens outside in the dhabas and Absolutely. and not really in the classroom so you're constantly yes. meeting people from history and other yeah. humanities yeah. and social sciences you never really stick to a discipline Absolutely. which which in a way plus i mean uh, our method, you know our methodology training is usually bad so you know right you know <laughs> disciplinarized whatever yeah yeah i mean <laughs> Yeah. Being untrained in methodology, frankly, is one of the best things that can happen to any aspiring scholar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, as Kanti Bajpayee, I think, used to say, methodology is heightened common sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Totally. Uh, uh, it's also sort of interesting some of the, you know, some of the influences, also criticisms that you raised at post-structural stuff are some of the criticisms that are sort of raised later against post-colonial stuff. You know, Nandi faces mm-hmm. a lot of criticism. uh for how his thought is being appropriated by the right wing and his his positions of caste and so on and so forth but we'll come to it in a bit but before that if you could do some ground clearance uh in terms of if you had to sort of um delineate some of the core central claims of postcolonial approaches in international relations what would be those okay uh i would say at least to my reading this four core tenets or uh, aspects to postcolonialism which define it as an approach and i'll be sort of didactic over here and i'll just lay them out so first in order to understand our world or any specific part or piece of our world we need to understand the global and extranational interactions and processes that have saturated the world since 1492 so for me the inaugural moment of postcolonialism or the postcolonial world is 1492 and it is very much the term i would used yeah the chrono the, the, the chronology i would use to describe postcolonialism as an approach so when people say postcolonialism is post independence the wave of decolonization in the 1950s or 60s or they say when you say postcolonialism you mean colonialism is over all of those things to my mind are misrepresentations post the postcolonial world began in 1492 and it continues to this day and the reason 1492 is significant is it's not just the discovery of the new world this was also the start of what campbell calls an anthropological imagination where territory and identity are seen as ideally coalescing or overlapping completely i mean the caravels that left spain portugal at the time some of them headed west discover the new world but others were the expulsion of the jews and the the islamization of that civilization of that culture in order to make it catholic christian and based on a territory so the centrality of 1492 as inaugurating the postcolonial world second racialized violence to be specific the genocide of the indigenous populations of the new world the violence of the slave trade and the violence of colonial and imperial conquests all of the world this is absolutely core and central to the emergence of the world system and its perpetuation to this day so the centrality of racialized violence these are not regrettable byproducts of the emergence of capitalist modernity or industrial society or things like that they are not aberrations they are not the side story they are the story three history matters the idea that one can better understand the world through theories that abstract away from history 
and reify certain allegedly patterned regularities on the models of either natural science or neoclassical economics. These efforts at abstract theory, to my mind, are uh, efforts to depoliticize our understandings of the world. In other words, always be wary of claims to objective, impartial, and universalist theory. Because as Robert Cox reminded us in that legendary essay of his in Millennium, theory is always for a purpose and always from somewhere, from a specific locus of enunciation. So there is nothing about theory that renders it sacrosanct. It is incredibly political. It's incredibly provincial and parochial always. And four, <clears throat> post-colonial approaches are not the privy of or somehow confined to scholars of color or those from the global south or interested in the global south or some identitarian group like gender, sexual orientation, etc. I've already indicated these spatial distinctions should not be reified and take our eyes away from the fact that we live in one continuously interacting world system. So post-colonialism is a perspective that's attentive to the production of racialized violence and inequality all across the world from 1492 to the present, which means it can be used just as much to analyze the Indian government's actions in Kashmir or the Northeast of India, or in Savarna or upper caste attitudes towards Dalits as much as it can be deployed to understand American foreign policy or the EU's immigration policy or Brexit or the Brazilian regime's actions in the Amazon. It's quite simply for me then a perspective that never allows us to forget that racialized violence inaugurated and continues to sustain the present world system. So that would be my sort of didactic response to what are the core tenets of postcolonialism. I mean, you've already made my next question redundant, but I'm still going to ask it. Um, uh, now, it's this distinction that's often made now between postcolonial approaches and decolonial approaches, or postcolonialism and decoloniality. Um, you wrote a wonderful book in uh, 2009, um, Globalization, Postcolonialism, Hegemony and Resistance in 21st Century, which, among other things, is uh, really an excellent introduction to postcolonialism and uh, here you provide a genealogy of postcolonialism. I think there are two chapters there. One is on genealogy of postcolonialism, others a critique of postcolonialism. Uh, but I guess it was written at a time uh, uh, before the time the term decolonial uh, became popular. So I actually did sort of a sort of a, a search of of the book and Control F, uh, and it didn't find the word decolonial at all, which is remarkable considering that today, I mean, you can't talk about anything like that without the term decolonial. So I was, I was wondering if you if you do see a distinction between post-colonial approaches and decolonial approaches, uh, or, or do you think that, you know, that, that, that distinction doesn't hold? You know, as academics, the material conditions of our profession encourage, almost force us to produce something novel or new or to make such claims at any rate. These distinctions emerge from and gain meaning from the very sociology of knowledge or material conditions of academia. It's not as if either of these approaches, decolonial or postcolonial, is going to hasten the end of the world capitalist system or reverse global warming or secure the rights of indigenous communities or subaltern classes. 
And it's not as if there's a globally progressive activist class of people out there waiting with bated breath for this debate to resolve itself before taking action to change the world. So these distinctions, you know, about post-colonial or decolonial sort of matter in the arcane world of academic publication, pursuit of distinction in making one's academic career and stuff like that, and in a very competitive and often narcissistic academic marketplace. I really don't attach any significance at all to these distinctions between post-colonial and decolonial. In fact, I would say the very thing that you mentioned, that suddenly from one point on decolonial sort of the number of Google hits on decolonial surges through the roof after starting from zero actually proves what I'm saying. <laughs> there are academic fads which sort of live out their utility. For me, it goes back to the basics of what I would consider uh, a materialist understanding of knowledge in terms of the imbrications of power and knowledge. But would, but would you say that these are just academic fads? Considering, I mean, de- the term decolonial especially comes very strongly through Rosemary's Fall movement and Black Lives Matter and, and sort of movements in, in, in Latin America and so on and so forth, sure. which in a way were quite uh, dissatisfied with sort of this hybridity and that kind of stuff from post-colonialism. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so do you think it's just a bit of an academic fad or do you also see in terms of representation, it's actually also representing sort of a, a, a sort of different uh, uh, interests? No, I think that's a brilliant question. And you really put me on the spot with that. Uh, these distinctions do focus upon certain silences or certain forms of uh, marginalizing something. I mean, I come to it at a later point in our conversation today about what I would consider one of the glaring uh, myopias, if you will, of post-colonial studies or post-colonial theory. I still wouldn't back away from my larger point, which is that uh, while they do in an academic sense, uh, in terms of our understanding of reality, focus on things that need to be emphasized more, I also don't want to get into a situation where you say that bringing decolonialism, the term and the concept into our analysis is somehow going to fundamentally transform the world. I mean, on this, I'm with Marx and German ideology and things like that. Let's not confuse our theorizing about these things with uh, any greater capacity to implement that change. That is still something that I think academics tend to confuse, that if I march under decolonial, I'm somehow intrinsically doing something much more progressive. I always question that slide between espousing a more inclusive uh, and politically possibly more progressive theory with the actuality of that happening. Let me then talk about another term, which is probably most popular in IR today, uh, global IR. Um, what's your approach to this global IR framing? Uh, and one critique is often made about how it sort of, in a way, defangs critique. You know, it, it, it tries to include post-colonial critique as sort of within mainstream IR, but in a way then sort of defangs the whole thing. Uh, what is your, and you've written recently on it, so if you could tell us a bit more on how, how, how you think, uh, where do you think post stands with regard to global IR? 
I mean, this question and this conversation actually is flowing very well in terms of how it links up to what we just talked about. Now, for me, the fact is that our scholarship, our universities, our social, intellectual, political lives are all embedded in what I would still very old-fashionedly call call a world capitalist system. Uh, our patterns or our, our, our protocols for you know rewarding and penalizing uh, scholarship. Uh, careers, all of these things are interwoven with these things. So critical scholarship is always faced with this dilemma, right? Unless my critique is recognized by and acknowledged as valid scholarship by the leading journals and scholars, I have no chance of my work making an impact. Yet the very process of defining what is valid scholarship is itself thoroughly imbued with power and ideology of the mainstream. So the very process of writing or arguing in a way that enables recognition by the protocols of the mainstream can blunt the critical edge of scholarship that aims to change or shift the mainstream. So yes, I recognize that recent efforts in global IR may defang postcolonial critique, but neither I nor anyone else owns postcolonial critique, nor can we legislate how it can be deployed and by whom. I would not overestimate the fangs of any academic or theoretical movement either, whether it's post-colonialism or critical Marxism or anything. As academics, we often engage in what Ashish Nandi once described as fearsome shadow boxing <laughs> with each other. <laughs> I think it's wise to remember that whatever the decibel level that, you know, sometimes personal animosity, much of this remains shadow boxing. Uh, so I am sometimes angered by uh, global IR uh, because it seems to sort of bowdlerize post-colonial critique of much that is actually uh, radical or, uh, you know, transforming about it. But at the same time, there is, a, I wouldn't say a sympathy or even empathy but there is an understanding that scholars, especially junior scholars, have to write and represent themselves in ways that cannot push the envelope beyond a certain point. And uh, there's also, as I said earlier, this continuous uh, uh, you know, desire and demand to produce something that is new, novel, uh, different from before, etc. They all add up to a cocktail, which can be, uh, you know, frustrating, depending on which side of the debate you're on at that point in time. Uh, I would just quickly remark that, you know, Stephen Salata, whose work I admire greatly, whose writing is tremendous, and who, has, who I admire personally and deeply as well, is a sort of salutary example of what happens, you know, what the hidden or unspoken boundaries are within our fields. So he was fine as long as he was working within certain accepted boundaries of what is considered critique regarding Israel-Palestine. But the minute he was seen as pushing beyond that, he has paid a tremendous price uh, in terms of his career. I mean, he's lost his job. He, he can't even find his way back into the academy. Uh, and that should, I think, serve to remind us of 
the boundaries that exist and that we all operate under. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that also reminds me of all that is happening in India where academics writing is sort of, you know, anything critical of the state, yeah. and, bars and, and all of that. Uh, and, and in a way then, uh, you have made a point that it's, it's a little more than sort of shadow boxing. Uh, uh, and with regard to post-colonial approaches, uh, there is this criticism being made uh, nowadays about, you know, uh, this affinity or appropriation of post-colonial decolonial claims by right-wing elements. It's it's happening quite yeah, prominently yeah. in India. So, how worried are you about this? And how do you how do post-colonial scholars address this in their scholarship? Right. Uh, again, I think this is hugely important. Uh, now, firstly, it's an inescapable fact of scholarship that once you write something and it's out there in the public domain, it can be uh, used and misused. It's just a fact of life in, in, you know, in scholarship. And this goes back to, you know, the very, the very fact that once you're writing for a public sphere in a public space, these things are likely to happen. So rather than worrying about it, I think one has to build an awareness of that possibility, which is not always going to be 2020 in terms of foresight, but you have to build an awareness of that possibility into your scholarship right from the get-go. So let me again illustrate by example rather than talking about it in abstract theory. So I live and work in Hawaii, where I've been for the last 32 years. It's the 50th state of the Union. It was annexed by the United States in the late 19th century. And it's the home of a really inspiring and multifaceted movement to regain Hawaiian sovereignty and to reverse U.S. colonial occupation. Many of my colleagues, my graduate and undergraduate students at the university and friends outside it, are at the forefront of a nationalist movement to regain Hawaiian sovereignty. Now, a lot of my scholarship in the context of India and Sri Lanka, and more generally in the context of IR, often seeks to deconstruct the nation, to expose the historical fictions, the inventions of tradition that inevitably underlie majoritarian nationalist movements everywhere. Now, it would be politically stupid and tone deaf of me to take my critique of nationalism majoritarian nationalism and see it as something that is always true in all spaces and times. Certainly for my uh, colleagues in the Hawaiian sovereignty movement, that is not right now a terribly enabling move. It it deconstructs the the very basis on which they are trying to launch a movement to recover their sovereignty, right? So as Bell Hooks once said, it's easy to deconstruct identity when you have one. Now, this is where, for me, Edward Said comes in again, because he keeps in the foreground the question, what is the purpose of my scholarship? Who does it, which groups and classes does it advantage, and who is it fighting against? In the absence of that kind of a question animating your work, that's really what the problem I had with that my critique of the postie scholarship in IR, that it seemed to be unmoored from a kind of normative anchor. So it's like, you have to build that awareness into your work right from the beginning. How does my critique of secularism sound in the context of contemporary India? 
Now, looking back, we can all critique Nandi for it, you know, for not having seen it. And so he wasn't the seer that we thought he was. Who is? <laughs> uh, there is an element of... Uh, now, there are more important critiques of Nandi, which I'm now beginning to see myself. And again, I use that as a mirror to see the myopias in my own work. And again, it's something I'll come to shortly, but the extent to which the celebration of tradition or of Gandhi or of a certain kind of folk Hinduism, etc., seemed not in conversation with caste. How does this sound from the perspective of somebody who's not a Savarna was what I think Nandi couldn't see in some of those critiques of secularism there. So I don't think there's a way to avoid having your scholarship appropriated by or used by uh, people completely opposed to your political agenda. But knowing that possibility exists, I think can and should inform your work. Again, on the book on Sri Lanka, I was very conscious of it, that uh, the Tamil myth to an ancient gloried homeland in the Northeast, you can demonstrate the historical artifices of that, the fiction of that. But what is the purpose of doing that when Sinhala majoritarianism is sweeping the country, when the government is completely, you know, trying to remake the nation uh, in a Buddhist Sinhalese uh, majoritarian framework? Your critique of the Tamil homeland's claim has to be accompanied by a critique of the limits of Sinhalese nationalism at that point, only in the context of a genuinely pluralist inclusive Sri Lankan nationalism does the critique of the Tamil homeland claim uh, gain salience. Otherwise, it plays into the hands of the most retrogressive forces. So I would say you can't avoid the appropriation uh, because once it's in the public domain, that's where it is. But the awareness that it could be appropriated should make you articulate the politics of your allegiances the ethics of what you're doing, it, it sort of forces you to clarify that, uh, you know, perhaps with greater sensitivity and uh, uh, attention than you might have. There's a sentence somewhere, and I'm paraphrasing, I think, in, 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 in Postcolonial Insecurities, your book on Indian Sri Lanka, it says something to the effect that uh, India memorialized Gandhi and by that muted him. Uh, so simultaneously memorialized and muted Gandhi, which in a way could also be said about our own, you know, um, icons and uh, sort of uh, idols in academia. We don't, we shouldn't memorialize them uh, because when we do that, we, we mute them. Um, um, three decades on um, and sort of in this journey, what do you think are some of the successes and failures of scholars working on post-colonial, decolonial approaches? Uh I'm sort of going to use the word success in quotation marks here, uh, if you want to call it that. So the success is that, you know, issues such as race, colonialism, imperialism, violence, I don't think are, can any longer be avoided uh, and cannot be regarded as peripheral to the emergence and reproduction of the global interstate system nor does methodological nationalism of the traditional IR variety go uncontested anymore. At a personal level, the discipline does not feel as alienating, as provincial, as Eurocentric as it used to be. Now, at the same time, 
I don't want to see this as the success of post-colonial scholars uh, specifically, because this happened at a certain moment in world time. As early as the 1990s itself, both Arif Derlich as well as Ejaz Ahmed pointed out that post-colonial studies and scholarship emerged and rose at a certain point in time and space. It emerged as the Western university system, its curriculum, its student body, its faculty, its overall ethos, if you will, was undergoing an expansion and awareness of an interlinked global system. So this greater movement of people like you and me from places like JNU to the Western Academy, our children or the children of people who came before us were flooding the university as students. Uh, there was a desire to, you know, this is, if you will, the ideological counterpart of globalization, right? This need to show greater awareness, this need to hire people of color onto faculties in order to look like you're with it, like you're part of this globalizing uh, academic marketplace as well. So the success is inextricable from that moment in global political economy. Now, honestly, that period is over. Uh, the pipeline bringing TAs from schools like JNU to the Western Academy has literally broken. <laughs> Along with that, you also see a resurging white nationalist supremacist uh, sort of set of forces, not just in the United States and Britain, but really all across the global north, if you will. So for me, the real question is, what is going to be the staying power of post-colonial studies? The success was achieved at a moment when there were a lot of pieces contributing to its success and its greater visibility. Its staying power, the legs it has, is now going to be really tested and challenged as critical race theory is you know, just prohibited from being taught in schools and universities as the sort of uh, you know, indulgence, quite honestly, that the Western Academy showed for some of these approaches is declining. How do we deal with that backlash is going to be the real test. Now, in terms of failures or blind spots, I would, again, in a didactic fashion, list three. First, I think, was something I alluded to earlier with the Hawaiian sovereignty movement, which is a failure on the part of many post-colonial scholars to take into cognizance the sort of vibrant, strong emergence of indigenous politics uh, based in First Nations peoples across the world, but especially in the settler colonial societies in which post-colonial studies emerged. So that was something we had to be educated into, you know, what about us as the indigenous people were, were writing and talking? And I could say a similar thing about the centrality of the African-American population in the United States, their longevity in the society. All of these were things that definitely post-colonial studies and its early formations. Again, there was a politics of wanting to ingratiate yourself with the mainstream of the Western academic marketplace, which is already racially coded. So in other words, whether... Realizing it or not, we were writing for an imagined white metropolitan uh, mainstream IR, which I think led to a certain neglect of, it was a positionality, which, which led to a certain neglect of both indigenous and black studies. Second, 
a lack of realization of self-understanding among post-colonial thinkers, and I would include myself prominently in this, on the ways in which our amnesia on the questions of race in Western IR has been replicated by a similar willed amnesia on questions of caste and inherited hierarchies in our own societies. We are part of an aspirational middle class, which is looking to ingratiate itself with structures of power in a global academy. And in that process, I think we've failed to see the ways in which we've replicated those moves when it comes to Dalits and others in our own society. And third, uh, it is something I've referred to in my most recent pieces, a tendency to confuse the greater diversity of skin tones or racial phenotypes or gender or sexual orientation at the high tables of the discipline, a tendency to confuse that with greater diversity in terms of class or access to social, cultural, symbolic capital within and amongst the practitioners of IR. Those, I would say, are three of the most consequential weaknesses in it as an intellectual movement or uh, subfield of study or whatever. Oh, thanks. It's It's been such a fascinating conversation. Uh, so this is, my, but this is going to be my last question uh, before we let you go. What, according to you, are some essential works on post-colonialism in IR for, for those students who are interested in following up? Right. And I'm going to take the last phrase very seriously for those who are interested in following up. Uh, and I'm not going to give a lengthy list. I'm actually going to give two works, uh, two specific suggestions. So the first one is Alina Sajed's, uh, Alina Sajed's essay titled Postcolonialism, uh, which is chapter four in a recently published book titled Theories of International Relations, which is edited by Richard Devitak and Jackie True. So Alina's chapter in that is a terrific uh, toward horizon of postcolonialism. You know, what are the legendary works? What are the classics? How did it emerge? How has it made an impact, etc.? Terrific bibliography, etc. So I would use that to get a general sense of the field. And then I would choose a particular book as my favorite exemplar of postcolonial scholarship at its best, even though the author may not want to be a part of the club or recognize himself as a part of the club, it's exemplary of post-colonialism at its best. And that is Anthony Angie's 2005 book, which is published from Cambridge University Press, called Imperialism, Sovereignty, and the Making of International Law. Uh, Angie does such a terrific job of showing how the very emergence of international law has to do with, you know, the discovery of uh, spaces has to do with intercolonial rivalries and competition and all the rest of it. So, yeah, if after reading Sajid's uh, introduction to the field and Angie's classic as an exemplar of postcolonial studies, uh, I think you should really get a sense of what this field can be at its best. Well, thank you so very much, uh, Krishna. It's been such an enlightening and sort of conversation. Uh, I've learned a lot, um, and hopefully you've had good time too. Uh, but our listeners are definitely going to have a great time. It's uh, it's a rarity to actually uh, have an interview in which uh, not only does the interviewer have such a deep knowledge of the field you're talking about and your own work, but uh, 
has that mixture of generosity and really pushing uh, the person to answer and not get away with, uh, you know, uh, the usual sort of academic slates of hand. So thank you for that uh, terrific session, really. I enjoyed it a great deal. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and hosts in the show notes. Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible.